Welcome to Why in the World. My name is Ben Shepherd. Firstly, thank you so much if you have rated, reviewed and subscribed. If you've not done that yet, please go and get that done. And some news. We've got a new Instagram account. So if you go and follow us on Instagram, I will follow you back. We are at Why in the World pods. Uh, We're going to be doing some competitions up on that Instagram page shortly as well. So if you would like to be in with the chance of winning some of the goodies that we are going to give away, then make sure you follow that account. Today's episode is with Seb Morris. Seb is a former British GT champion, a race car driver, hailing from North Wales. He's a really nice guy. I really enjoyed chatting to him and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Seb Morris is on Why in the World. Seb Morris, hey man. Hey man, how are you? Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. Thank you for doing this to start with. And thank you for having me. You made me a lovely brew, which I do genuinely appreciate. All right, yeah. So, for people that don't know who you are, just give a bit of background about yourself to start with. So, I'm a bit of a lunatic. I'm, my job is, is racing carts uh, up to 200 miles an hour, and I do that for a living. So, uh, every March through till November is our race season, and we basically go all around the world, all around Europe and, and many, many very cool places uh, racing all sorts of different sports cars. So mm. a lot of people struggle to understand what area of racing I'm in. So I'm in a thing called endurance racing. So as opposed to Formula One, Formula One's a very fast, you know, one hour, one and a half hour race max. We do 24 hour races. So it's a very, very physical sport, you know, just as physical, if not more than F1 nowadays and I race for Bentley so Bentley competes against all the different car manufacturers uh, such as the likes of Lamborghini Ferrari Aston Martin uh, Nissan the list goes on and on and on and uh, the road car manufacturers do this to uh, advertise their road cars as best they can because if the race cars are winning then they you know they can sell more road cars so uh, it's a very exciting circus to be part of mate 24 hours yeah that's mad so it's it's a concept that's been around for a very long time. Uh, listeners may have heard of Le Mans. So, uh, which is one of the races which I aspire to do. It's very hard to get into Le Mans, though. So I, I do. I've done the twenty four hours of Daytona, which is in Florida, which is an amazing race, and I led the race for quite a long time until the car broke down. But that's the story for another that. day. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I've done the twenty four hours of, of Spa, in, which is in Belgium, uh, and that's obviously the famous F one track with the corner of Rouge that goes up the hill so I've done a few 24 hour races now and uh, it's about adding more and more to the tally but going back to the actual uh, physical side of it it's uh, extremely physical we have three drivers sharing each car so this is where endurance racing gets interesting so basically uh, I get to I get two teammates and we all hop in and hop out of the car so instead of Formula 1 they come in for a pit stop they do their tyres and they go we come in for a pit stop the guy jumps out of the race car while it's still turned on. I jump in and then he helps me strap up. They put the tyres on, the team put the tyres on around the car and then we go fill it up and then off I go. So the same car but different drivers jumping in and out. So in a 24-hour race, we do different cycles. So we tend to do three hours each. So three hours depends who thinks that's a long time or not but it's definitely a long time I get time. stressed driving for three hours the, the problem is is the concentration for that amount of time we, yeah. we try and drink as much water as we can 
Um, but you don't want to drink so much before the race to the point where you need a wee because if you need a wee in the race car you've got no option other than go in the race car, go in the race and car. then the poor guy getting in the car after you yeah. must be like Seb what have you done mate I, I, I've had that done to me as well I mean, oh, I've no. got a wet seat <laughs> but yeah it's, it's incredibly uh, it's incredibly physical in, in terms of the heat uh, the, the only way I can describe it is it's like being in a sauna a sauna mixed with a steam room because obviously it's so sweaty you're wearing fireproof bottoms fireproof top fireproof race suit which is three layers thick you're wearing fireproof uh, socks fireproof boots fireproof gloves fireproof balaclava and then a fireproof helmet on top of that so you're half race car driver half firefighter at that point yeah at that point and you know, I, I didn't realise. You always think, God, this is this stuff's all so hot. I mean, if if we were to walk around in this in the stuff I wear now, it's three degrees outside. You and I would be incredibly warm just stood outside in that stuff. It's that hot, but it it saves your life. So at the uh, at a circuit called Port Ricard, we're doing a six-hour race there in the south of France last year. I got set on fire in a pit stop, and I was sat in the car while the car was just fully on fire, and I was on fire as well. Um, but because of all the fireproof race race stuff, all I had to do was put my visor down on my helmet, and I just sat there on fire for about ten seconds while they put it out, and then I actually drove off. You Were know? you not terrified at that point, though? It was hot. It, 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 it's the first time I've ever been set on fire, and I've been racing for uh, God, twelve, thirteen years now. So, because um, I've been racing since I was seven years old. So yeah, it was the heat was the biggest thing. Yeah, the, the heat of a fire. I mean, I've never experienced anything like it. Obviously, if you stand close to an open fire at home, you get the heat. But what happened was this is all the fine margins of racing. It's why I was will go on to. There's so many things you have to get right in order to mm. win. So I was leading the race, came in for the pit stop. We just needed a splash and dash, which is just when we put a bit of fuel in, it was just so we could finish the race. And the pit stop doesn't take that long. Uh, so we kept the same tyres in. Put the fuel, put the fuel on, but it didn't come off properly. Uh, so the fuel isn't the same; it doesn't go in the same as obviously in a pump in your petrol station. So your pump in the petrol station is only about ooh, what is it? About three, four centimeters wide maximum. Ours are 15, 20 centimeters wide. You have guys who come in; it's over their shoulder. The, the fuel line is about 30 centimeters in diameter. Like a giant hose. Like a giant, yeah. That's that's a better way. A giant fire hose is exactly what it's like. And it gets airtight, sucked onto the car with two nozzles, which makes everything completely locked, so it's airtight. And what happens is that is the fuel, because it gets compressed, the fuel gets dragged into the race car rather than having to be pushed. So, so you can do a 140-litre tank in about 30 seconds. Whoa. But if you were doing that, so the petrol station, you would be there for nearly 10 minutes. <laughs> so that's the comparison. So basically, we had, we had a problem getting it off and the something went wrong in terms of how the air was compressed and stuff like that fuel leaked onto the side of the race car and then it, it was it was more fuel vapor because the fuel had already gone in it was the vapor left in the in the fire hose we'll call it um, which we needed afterwards um, so the fuel left in it the all, all the vapor set on fire all around the car and came into the window Jesus. and everything like that and so uh, so that's the that's the important reason why we wear these fireproof stuff. But back to my original point, you know that that's it creates the the fitness aspect. It's hard to train for heat. You know the our average temperature inside the race car is about fifty to fifty five degrees Celsius. In that moment, then when that vapor did set on fire, yeah, what what goes through your head in that moment? Are you trained enough? to know, right, this is what I need to do, I need to put my visor down, I need to just sit here, and I need to 
chill, it's going to be okay? Or do you go into a state of panic at that point? I think everyone's different. I think to be a racing driver, you do have to be some sort of clinically crazy person. Okay. You're allowed to say that because that's you saying (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm allowed to say that. Because, you know, you go out there every single time knowing that you might not come back one day. And you have to live with that fact. And, and it, it, I know a lot of sports are dangerous, but there's nothing quite like motorsport when there's a lot of things that aren't in your control. So, you know, a wheel could fly off or, or the car, like we said, back to the car setting on fire. What I did in that moment in time was I've just been told a procedure. And because I'm a professional racing driver, that is part of my pro- profession. If I, if I started screaming, yelling, and I undid that seatbelt, the moment I undid that seatbelt that would take away any possibility of me winning that race because it would take 15 seconds to put the seatbelt back on. Mate, it's mad that you were still thinking about winning the race at that point when you're on fire. <laughs> I can't comprehend that. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I, so what I did in answer to your question was was I just, I sat there, put my visor down, and I know that I've got 25 seconds before my, my, my body starts burning. And I was, all I was doing was I was just counting in my head, one, two, and just seeing how long I was on fire and then I saw and then I, after but it was a, it was about eight or nine seconds I think I was on fire for uh, and when I saw the extinguisher start coming into the car and then into the cockpit I, I the fire went out on me straight away because it was more of a vapour fire so it was it was a sort of fire that wasn't attached to my race suit which is why I was less worried I could see it was just in the car and okay. it was incredibly hot but I wasn't on fire myself but obviously it feels like you are because yeah. there, was, there was flames all inside I could see the flames in front of my eyes so after about seven or eight seconds, I, I saw, I, I heard all the extinguishers going off and then I just immediately started the car back up and I just got the sign to go and I finished the race and I, I was covered in foam throughout the rest of the race. That is mad. That's mad. <laughs> it's a special type of human being that can do that though. Yeah. Like you've obviously had to train your mind as well as your body to be able to do something like that and to be so relaxed in what is obviously an incredibly stressful environment. You mentioned before, I just want to go back to a few things, the fact that there's three of you, that must be really hard because in an endurance sport, the majority of the time, yeah. you are answering to your own self. The, the, the trust comes in, in the fact that in a 24-hour race, you need to get your sleep in that 24 hours because you will not be performing if you stay up. The cars never stop and you have to stay on site because you never know when if something happens or if someone falls ill at the wheel or something and I had to get back in very quickly I have to I have to have the ability to be able to do that so we can't leave the track you can't go and get a good night's sleep but surely you're so amped up after your stint how do you sleep yeah so this is where the trust thing comes in is because you've got to have co-drivers who you as soon as you shut that door and strap them in you you go they'll be fine and that's what everyone thinks of me because you know hopefully I've, I've done a very good job throughout my career and won a lot of stuff so you know, I, I people shut the door on me and go, Seb, will be fine. It'll be okay. Uh, and then you can go and get some sleep. If he gets on fire, it'll be yeah, fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, th- coming back to your point, when you get out of the car, I can't describe the adrenaline rush you have. I've never, I've done everything you can possibly do as an adrenaline rush. I've been on every roller coaster, skydiving, everything, and it's just all, it just nothing excites me because mm. I can't describe the thrill of racing. And, and part of the thrill is knowing that you're you're sort of dicing with death. You know, you're you're on the very edge of what you and the car can do. You're putting the car under extreme loads. You're putting the tires under extreme pressure. You're racing people wheel to wheel, and it's the fact that it's in your control. 
I think I would, if I, I think I'd be the worst passenger ever. I think my girlfriend can vouch for that. I get scared of her doing thirty miles an hour through a town, but I'm fine to do two hundred. <laughs> when you come out of the car, you can be knackered, but your your heart is still absolutely coursing with adrenaline. You can feel it running through your veins. And when mm. I get out of the car, you know, if if you ever get a chance to come to one of the races, you'll see I'm like this shaking. But that's not a nervous shake. It's the fact that I've had that much adrenaline pumping through me. It takes you a good an hour and a half to calm down. So you only have three to five hours off. Before you hop back in. Before you hop back in. So you spend about half an hour to an hour debriefing the team about how your stint's gone, what you, how you think the car's gone. So that's an hour gone. It takes you and usually another half an hour to an hour to fully calm down. Get all the electrolytes out of your system as well and there's all the stuff you've been eating before to hype you up for your stint mm. because you've just done three hours. And then the knackiness kicks in. You pass out for four hours, which is only half a sleep cycle. And then you're back up and you've got to be sat in the garage with your helmet by you an hour before you better get back in. So you think you have six hours off, but by the end of it, you mess around, you've only got three hours sleep in a 24-hour race. So then it's the fact that you've got to do two more sets of three hours through the night and into the morning. On you know, Some, some people don't sleep, some people can't do it. I, I, I can get my head down. But it's the fact that you're then your body's running on fumes. You've not slept properly. You go through spikes of adrenaline. So when we put heart monitors on, people, it's fascinating when you put a heart monitor on to the 24 hours because you can see the spikes when you're in the car, obviously. And every time you have a moment or something happens, your heart rate increases, in, well, mine does, immediately to about 205 beats per minute. So my heart rate, because I'm quite fit, will average about 130, 140 beats per minute throughout a stint. But if something happens, someone spins in front of you and you have to react, you can see this instant spine. And that's the adrenaline. So it's, it's quite interesting when you start looking at it from a more scientific point of view like that. Is racing becoming like that now? Is it very scientific? Yeah, everything's getting closer and closer. The car manufacturers are almost identical in terms of their pace. Drivers are all extremely fit. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate enough to interview Michael Schumacher when I had a documentary filmed on myself when I was a little kid and I, and I wrote a letter and said, can I interview Michael? And, and sure enough, he wrote back and said, yes, I can. Yeah. So, you know, he, he, he told me how he was the very first person to bring fitness to that sport of Formula One. He changed the game and now everyone's had to follow him. So, in answer to your question, yeah, everyone's similar fitness. Everyone's, all the teams are similar, all the cars are similar. We're all operating at, operating at such a high level. I mean, I watched a thing on Jim Clark the other day and there was you know, he was an amazing driver, but he was winning races by five minutes. You don't get that anymore. No. In 24-hour races, we've there's cars cross the line within seconds of each other, like literally one or two seconds. It's getting that close. So, so it's whatever you can do, whether it's nutrition do, or... Yeah, so my, my nutrition's always spot on. My, my sleep, I start focusing on my sleep cycles because I go travel to different countries in the world mm. and, and I get onto different time zones. Then it's it's... The way you work with the team is the most important thing. You've constantly got to be motivating them. You've got to have your plan sorted out. You've got to have your debriefs and briefings sorted out. If we, We've done an amazing thing with the Motorsport UK Academy at the moment, which is the sort of, it's, a, it's the motorsport equivalent of Team GB, which I'm on. And we had a thing called Insights Discovery done on us, which is how your brain works. And they put you on a colour chart in a wheel. So you've got red, yellow, blue and green are the predominant colours. Okay. A lot of racing drivers are very red because red is, I want to get things done. I want to win. I don't care. A bit how reckless. I get there. Yeah, reckless. I don't care how I get there. And with me, I'm quite a lot of yellow as well, which is, you know, life and soul of the party, have fun. You know, I'm a people pleaser as well. Mm. But 
you tend to find your engineers are very blue people. They just want the numbers. They don't want to hear you coming in, shouting and screaming and, and things like that. They just want to get the job done. They mm. don't react well to someone coming in, shouting, screaming. If you say the car's absolutely rubbish, blah, 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 they will not react well to that. So that that this is sort of stuff that puts us ahead of, of other people. Yeah. Um, especially the way the UK squad do it. Uh, because I've now learned in things like that, I get so much more of my t- out of my team than, you know, by understanding if someone's a blue person, a green person, a yellow person, or a red person, and oh. you can alter your personality to change the way you deal with different people in the team. So all the engineers tend to be quite blue, all the drivers tend to be quite red, the team managers can be quite red, but also they have to have you know yellow in them as well. And I found that absolutely fascinating, learning the psychology of it, because if you're not bonding well with every single person at team, yeah. And I go around in the morning, I shake every single person's hand. I go and ask how everyone's weekend's been before the race. I go and uh, you know, bring the bring the lads donuts and cups of coffee and stuff like that because no one, you know, still a lot of people don't understand if, if, if you get that bond with every single member of your team, when something goes wrong and your car's totaled in a practice session, they've got to get it repaired for the race. They'll have you back. They'll have it back for, yeah. for Seb because Seb's been the one that cares about me and it's all that sort of stuff that's interesting. It doesn't cost anything to be nice, does it? Exactly. It, you know, a lot of racing drivers go around with us with a mood on them and, and I, I've, seen, I've seen, I've been racing for 13 years, I've seen people come into garages in the morning and just with their shades on, with their earphones in mm. and they just have a little look around the car and then go and sit in the truck until literally the point the race starts and they'll, and they'll jump in the car and they've not said hello to any single one of the lads and I've seen the same people that have done that their team not fix their car in time for the race and not go the extra mile and that's what it takes to win a championship such as the ones I'm doing is you know the team are working all the way through the, the lads don't get any sleep the lads do run on fumes and, and it, it's every extra thing like that you've got to put together to make sure that you have got that team that's absolutely Know, to the point they're obsessed with you and obsessed with the fact that they want to win just as much as you mm. which is another important thing because I suppose like on the outside if you're looking in to something like racing and you don't really know much about it you would kind of look at it as maybe quite an individual sport but it's not an individual sport at all yeah it, it's the most you know team oriented sport I, I know I mean I, I've got 25 lads in my race team who I all know by name I've got two to three teammates and then, and then you've got up to 200 people you're racing against so you, you've got to decide yeah. how you react with all them as well and the problem is 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 that I know drivers who drive for a certain car so I, you know I know a couple of my good friends race for Aston and I know they're in car number 97 for example but there's three of them I don't know which one it is so you have to decide what way you approach a situation on track as well if you know because when I was in single seater racing you used to know exactly who you're racing against and you'd know their characteristics and traits but the problem is an endurance race and you don't know who's in that number 97 mm. car it could be the guy who's very aggressive and you, who no will turn into you if you try and go for a gap or it could be the guy that's it might be his first weekend he's going to yield in a gap and, and you'll get through so it's it's all the, the fact that judge, judging things tactics as well tactics are a massive thing I mean the, the strategists within the team never get enough credit because you know if, if they get something wrong they get slammed but if they do something right you know mm-hmm. everyone just presumed it's a team effort but it might have just been that guy that, come, that said come in a lap earlier because something's going to happen a lap after and lo and behold a safety car comes out or something like that and you've timed it perfectly you've thrown the number around 200 miles an hour a couple of times yeah. already in this conversation that to me seems like 
a really inconceivable number. Like 200 miles an hour is so fast. Can you remember the first time that you hit that number? It was at Daytona Speedway in, in Florida. And I just, I just won a competition worth 250,000 quid. And that, that gave me the chance to go and race in the Rolex Daytona 24 hours, which is a very famous race. I got the chance to go in the fastest car in, in that championship with the best team because I'd won the prize, um, I call the prize, won a prize called the Sunoco Challenge, which is basically every driver in Britain and Europe, they amalgamate all the points in every single different racing championship to make them on the same basis. And I came out on top because I got the most fastest laps, the most pole positions, the most wins, which is a very good way of doing things. So it gave me the chance to do that. And I remember going out in practice and I'd been racing for with Bentley that year. And I, you know, I thought, I know that's a fast car and stuff like that. And I got in this 850 horsepower LMP1 car which is the Le Mans car um, but it's the American version of it and uh, I remember going on the oval and the ovals the oval banking was so it's something like 30 odd degrees so to put it into context you can That's mad. you can search banking at Daytona and people have to go on all four to force to get up it you can't walk up it and I remember I looked down at the speedo after I'd sort of started getting used to it and I was doing 214 miles an hour and I thought this is quick <laughs> You never look to the side when you're racing, you're always looking ahead. And I just looked to the side and you just couldn't see anything. It was just blurry. And that, that feeling of speed is just the best in the world. But the feeling that I try to get everyone to understand is the downforce. It's a strange force that physically sucks your organs into the ground and, and sucks the whole car into the ground. And the faster you go, the more downforce you get, which means the more grip you have. So if you're struggling in one corner and you're a rookie, and if I was coaching you, I would tell you, you need to go faster. <laughs> See, that seems just because, inconceivable. I know, because you would be generating more downforce, which means it's pushing the tyres harder to the ground. hold in get, Yeah, hold in, which means you'll get more grip. And it's just getting your head around that inconceivable thing that, oh, I, I felt, you know, some people can feel really skittish to sliding around and you, and you go, it's because you're not going fast enough. And people go, what? <laughs> so... That's the thing, you know, I, I've, I've been in some amazing cars in my time and, you know, in the, in the Bentley, we can take corners at 120, 130 miles an hour, like round a corner. Everyone says, you know, the top speed, the 200 miles an hour is brilliant, but I tell you what, it's the fact, it's, it's when you're going round a corner at 120, 130 miles an hour and your head feels like it's going to come off your shoulders because the G-force is so yeah. strong. That's, that's the most scary bit. Obviously, you can't see Seb right now. You're just listening to this. But as soon as we started talking about speed, his smile just went back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've always had a rush for it. And when people ask me how I got into racing, it's just been something embedded into my brain. I don't know why. My, dad, my dad's had a few nice cars, but never been involved in motorsport ever. And usually people in racing have always had their dad that's done it. And it's always been passed down through the family because obviously a little boy's dad's a racing driver. He wants to follow his dad. But I didn't have that. And I um, I was jumping in any sort of cars I could at an early age. I remember stealing my mum's uh, mum and dad's keys to their cars, and you just go and start them up on the driveway at three years old. I was doing stuff like that, and uh, it all started when I had a go karting party at seven years old. I remember it was you know a really cool party. I had about fifteen of my best friends there, and I went and lapped everyone three times, and and it all started. I still didn't think anything of it. I was only very young. My dad didn't either, he just saw my, my boy's very quick about driving a go-kart. And the manager at the, the karting centre said, he said, uh, your son's special, he needs, to, he needs to do this for a living. And my dad obviously didn't have a clue what he was on about. And this was up in Deeside, actually. And uh, 
he said he said to my dad he said you need to seriously seriously do something with your son and you know this is what he's meant to do what he's born to do and it's one of those you know something that he set mm. a movie so we went to our local professional karting track i got my license at eight years old um to race cars it's, it's called it's called an arcs test advanced racing karting license or something so i got that eight years old and then the rest is history basically that does sound like the start of a film, doesn't it? Yeah. It really does. What do your parents, you mentioned your dad there, what do they think about racing? Like, obviously, you've been brought up with it now, and it's a big investment from them as well, I would imagine. Do they get scared when you're doing these sorts of things, when you're going flat out? Like you said previously yourself in this conversation, you said, look, there is a risk involved with this. Yeah, I mean, I, I always... Yeah, it might get quite emotional, but I always make sure I give my mum and dad a big hug goodbye whenever I go racing and when you know whenever I even jump in the car because anything can happen. Mm. And yeah, that my mum has been excellent. She's the, she's very nervous and you know she comes as many races as she can, but she, you know it puts an immense strain on her knowing a, a little boy is driving around there and anything could happen. My dad takes a far more you know professional approach and. and a, considered approach he he prefers looking at the numbers and looking at how I'm doing my sector times and stuff like that and he he's been my biggest fan I don't think he's ever missed a race he's been there since I was seven years old and I still remember we used to do it ourselves we used to have a little trailer on the back of our car and dad and I would be starting up the cart in the morning setting up our little tent for the day my dad would make the sandwiches for the day and just to think how far we've come now we're in multi multi million pound racing outfits such as Bentley and we used to race at a circuit called Ceredigrigion in the north of Wales. My dad used to drive us there. We used to get the car out of the trailer at seven o'clock in the morning. We'd scrape the snow off the off the cart and stuff like that. <clears throat> Spend half an hour trying to start the engine every morning. You know, I'd have to keep on going back into the car to get warm. Put some more choke on it. Come yeah. on. <laughs> exactly. Put some more choke on it. That'd be filling up with fuel, and then you know we we just pound around all day my dad would stand on every corner and look at what the other guys were doing and where they were breaking and he'd stand further and further towards the breaking point until I could break as late as the big boys and that's where it's all come from they must be so proud though dad is incredibly proud yeah he's been on this journey with me Mm. invested a lot of his time you know our busiest time was when I was actually about 11 years old I was in school at King's School in Chester and I was doing three, four days a week there. I was I couldn't be full-time at school because I was racing 49 weekends of the year. And my dad came to every single race from Thursday until Sunday, every single weekend. So, you know, it's a massive commitment. And when he, when he sees me winning on a, on a world and European level now, he's, he's, he's a proud man. So when the Bentley thing happened then, when you began driving for Bentley, can you remember the moment that that was kind of solidified? I'm still getting there in terms of being driving for them all the time, but, you know, I do selective races with them and then I do pro-am racing, so I've got an amateur driver and and, uh, I'm the pro. And the amateurs are basically businessmen who fund the programme and contribute towards the the running budget. Talk to me then about some of your biggest highlights, your greatest highlight, what's that been so far? My greatest highlight's got to be winning the British GT Championship. I mean, it's a championship with the, all the car manufacturers put their effort into. It's based in Britain and it's a very, very close championship. And I partnered with Rick Parfit Jr., um, who's the son of Rick Parfit from Status Quo. I was only about 18, 19. And uh, 
I got a call from him and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And uh, he said, you know, along with my gigging and stuff like that, I want to I race with you. He'd done a bit of racing before, missed out on it in the first year. We made too many mistakes, both Rick and I. And then, my God, we worked hard over the winter of 2016 to 2017 and we were just both came back different people. We were both fitter, we were both stronger. Uh, I, I took Rick to driving days at this random airfield in a Vauxhall Astra with a guy called Rob Wilson, who if you search him, he's one of the most illustrious people ever because he, he he's coached three quarters of the current Formula 1 grid and we went there in a Vauxhall Astra and I just taught Rick car dynamics and how you change the weight of the car because the car is like an animal that needs to be treated with respect and you know it's a graceful thing people think of racing and ragging these cars around but you need to little things like when you brake just a millisecond before you brake make sure you take your foot off the throttle and then just start touching the brake so that the car knows something's about to happen, so the weight transfusion isn't so aggressive. It's stuff, it's stuff like that which makes a real difference mm. in driving technique. And when we're turning, when we go into a corner, we do what's called preload. So when we're about to, this is all over a tenth or two of a second, but I'm going to explain it like it's taking a minute. But when we turn into a corner, we ever so slightly turn the wheel, even if you turn the wheel a couple of millimeters, it means the car takes a set, the weight starts moving and it starts sitting on the outside tyres before it's even started thinking about going around the corner. Right. So the car is prepared for what's coming. And it's stuff like that that I've had to tell Rick, who's an amateur driver, but he's only a couple of seconds a lap off me, you know, sometimes even faster than that. And when I taught him that, the fundamentals of car dynamics, sometimes he was amazing amateur as it was. We won races in 2016, but the biggest achievement was winning the whole championship in 2017 because we did things like that. And I, and it, I took him back to his the very fundamental roots of driving a race car fast and we did it all in a Vauxhall Astra on an airfield <laughs> mate you speak about driving like it's an art do you see it like that it, it's an absolute fine art and a lot of sports I'm sure you've heard of 10,000 hours rule and you mm. can do anything good in 10,000 hours and you could probably be a good racing driver in 10,000 hours but it is that last couple of tenths of a second I, I, I'd love to do some research into it because luckily I'm on the right end of the spectrum. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I'm at the very top, and a couple of people, you know, I've raced against will always be a couple of tenths of a second off me. But you times that by 24 hours, and you're a long way ahead. Mm. You know, there's something that separates the immensely talented people like Lewis Hamilton and Senna Michael Schumacher from the people who can good enough to get to F1, but they just can't quite stay there. And I don't know what it is, but I, I am convinced it is pure natural talent embedded into your brain where you know things are going to happen before they start happening a lot of people have watched onboard videos of me and I've saved stuff and I've done things and people have gone how have you done that and I've just said well I knew it was coming and they go but how and I think it's something you literally feel through your bum your body and it's you've got to have a sixth sense to know exactly what the car is doing before it gets there so if it's a car's about to slide, you've already mini-corrected it before it's even done it. And it's just stuff like that. It's why the best drivers look the most smooth and it looks effortless. Mm. Because I'm convinced something's going on up in your brain and your body that knows something's about to happen. Because then you see the drivers, the amateur drivers, and they aren't quite as good. They're still very good. But they'll have big moments, they'll have big slides, and, and everything will seem a bit rushed. But the fastest guys, it looks the easiest. Maybe it is something that you're born with. Maybe it is. Maybe well, it's like you're kind of saying, like that guy in D side, he's seen you driving that car and he said, he's got something. 
Maybe it is that something. I, I know it's that something, but I, I'd love to be able to do some research to find out what it actually. So what is. that something is? Because I, because you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I sound very arrogant here, but you know, I'm extremely good at motorsport to the point where I don't believe anyone would be better than me if they're, if they're in the same car at the same time. But I can't catch a tennis ball. I can't. <laughs> I, can't I, I can't play football. Okay. I, I I can just about ski. I was never good at anything in school, but. You're a savage but behind the wheel. how the hell can I jump into a race car and be the, as good as anyone out there? And, and, and that's, it's, that's the strange thing about how the human body works because I was born with a God-given talent to do that, but I can't do anything else. I think I'm going to leave that sort of speed up to the professionals. That is Seb Morris on Why in the World. His new season with Bentley has just started as well. If you want to follow that, just hit up his social media. He posts everything up there. Next week on Why in the World, we have got Laura Hughes. Laura is a bronze medalist at the Commonwealth Games for Wales, and she is also a CrossFit athlete. That episode will come out next Wednesday, as always. And please do rate, review, and subscribe if you have not done that yet. Last of all, as I said, we've got a brand new Instagram channel, which is at Why in the World Pod. If you go and pop that a follow, I will make sure I follow you back.